This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Pride of London podcast, part of the fan-sided podcast network. Please welcome your hosts, Gabe Henderson and Travis Tyler. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Pride of London podcast. My name is Gabe Henderson, and I will be your host. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host and co-site expert, Travis Tyler. And then we've got a special guest with us today. So we'd like to welcome Dan to the show. So, Dan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody, and then we'll get things kicked off. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan. Obviously, a Chelsea fan for uh, 20 years now. Um, yeah, d- thank you guys for having me on, first of all. Uh, it's really great to be here to, to chat Chelsea, our, our great club. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a, a sort of just a Chelsea social media presence, a little bit of content creator. Uh, I write for the Chelsea Social. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, idano05. That's I D A N K N O W 5 Also, run a little bit of a podcast myself uh, as well. It's a Premier League centric podcast. It's called H, another football podcast. Um, it's uh, like a Southern African take on the, the Premier League. If any of you are interested, uh, just check us out on Twitter. It's uh, at E I S H football pod. Uh, thank you again for having me. Really great to be here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for being here. And I'm sure if uh, if you're listening, if you interact with Travis or I or even our podcast on Twitter, then you'll know Dan's page. And so just be sure to check all that stuff out. So let's get right into it, gents. So yesterday um, we had a Premier League game, but before we get to that, we want to talk about the semifinal against Spurs, the second leg in the Carabao Cup. So just kind of give me some of your initial thoughts in the one nil win as Chelsea moved into the final. Uh, yeah, if I may jump in here, uh, I was very pleased with the fact that uh, just how we controlled both legs against Spurs. I mean, Spurs have had like a, a real notable uh, improvement in their performances, just their level of fitness, uh, the quality of their their play uh, since Antonio Conte has been able to no really no real surprises. Chelsea fans, we know Conte well. Um, but uh, yeah, I think if, if we focus purely on the second leg uh, itself, I think Spurs were better in the second leg. Uh, certainly didn't have uh, quite as shambolic a, a performance and there weren't as, ma- as many open spaces uh, uh, to attack for Chelsea in the in the second leg. But what I liked uh, against Spurs was the fact that uh, we controlled the game well. Um, you know, got, uh, got a, a winner, obviously, from a, a corner, a uh, Rudiger header. And uh, we seem to manage the, the game well. Uh, Chelsea seem to be really quite a good team in, in cup competitions. Uh, we seem to manage uh, the two-legged ties very well. So I, I always thought that Spurs was going to be a sticky opponent uh, in the semifinals of the Carabao Cup. Um, but I think that, uh, as I say, I'll go back to it, that just the level of control. Uh, I, th- I certainly thought we blew hot and cold a little bit in attack. Um, but uh, we got the job done, uh, kept a clean sheet over two legs. And I think that's... a uh, really, really good result and uh, great to make another Wembley final. Yeah, I, I think control is definitely the key word there. I mean, Conte has, <clears throat> excuse me, Conte has gotten this Tottenham side playing better than they have been, except for against Chelsea. And in these two legs, overall, we just completely controlled everything in the matches. Um, for this one specifically, uh, they, they created about as many chances as we did, as bad as many shots. But, I mean, we had so much possession, and we didn't really let those shots be as dangerous as they could have been. And, I mean, 
I'm, I'm excited that, you know, we kind of used the four at the back again and it proved that it held up again. So I don't, we can talk more about this when we talk about city. I don't know why we have only really used four at the back against Tottenham, but it worked. It worked really well. And, you know, the link up between like Timo Werner and Lukaku, that seems to really be something that meshes well with this team. And it helps us to cover for, you know, we don't have wingbacks right now. So we're, we're basically playing these defensive fullbacks that can kind of shift in and out of where they need to be. And it provides a really stable base. And we saw that against Tottenham. I mean, the, this has got to be some of our most impressive games for months now, you know, since November when we were top of the league, these two Spurs games really stand out. And the defining characteristic of them is the four at the back and the control we got from it. Um, Yeah. As as for what happens the next time we play them, we'll see in the league, but it seems like we've got Conte's number with this, this whole system. And I know I mentioned last pod that I kind of expected the second leg to look a lot like the Porto second leg where we weren't really trying to overextend ourselves and just trying to control them. And that seems to have been the case. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point because I know you and I talked about that last week and that's really what I expected from us. Um, But just quickly, my initial thoughts, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting that we came out in this malleable shape and, you know, people really had a hard time figuring out, were we playing a four, two, 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 were we playing a three at the back? You know, it kind of evolved over time as the game went on. And I just wonder if he was doing that to keep Conte on his toes because as everyone knows, the best way to counter a back three is with a back three of your own. And so obviously Antonio Conte was seen as Thomas Tuchel's kryptonite of sorts and Tuchel kept him guessing. And I think that was really important. And I think that's really important for us going forward. But, you know, I, I was satisfied with the win after watching it. The only thing is I saw a lot of negative reaction to how we played. So my next question to you guys do you think it was a lazy performance, as a lot of people were saying? Do you think we kind of let Spurs back in? Or are you guys in agreement with me where we were just 3-0 up in a tie and we knew there was really no way back for Spurs, even if we let them have possession and let them take these chances? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like two-game calculus that we saw last year in the Champions League. If you're already that far ahead, you don't really need to overextend yourself to push that lead even further. You just need to see out the game and, you know, with other games coming, you know, hot and fast, we don't need to go all out against Spurs when we already had a two zero lead on the aggregate. And I mean, I get away goals aren't a thing in the league cup semifinal and they won't be in the champions league, but you know, we, we didn't need to go crazy against Spurs. We just needed to keep them at an arm's length. And that's what we did. You know, it could have ended 0-0 and we would have been totally fine. Uh, We could have lost 1-0 and been fine. And not many teams are able to get any further than 1-0 on us. So, yeah, I mean, this just wasn't really a game to go all out and prove a point, especially when you had Manchester City next. So I'm okay with how we approach this one, honestly. Yeah, lads. If I think, uh, if I may jump in, uh, I think that the the interesting point about the the system itself, uh, the four two two two, was uh, just how it uh, sort of countered the, the Spurs midfield and just sort of 
gave them too much to think about. You know, I, I, I know you mentioned that uh, it would be interesting to see how it went uh, uh, perhaps against City. Uh, but I just think uh, just with City's probably, we'll probably get into it later, but City's verticality would have probably undone the, the 4 2 2, two uh, a bit too much because there's a lot of space out, out wide. But I think what was interesting as well is the fact that we've seen, we're seeing maybe for me for the first time, uh, like you mentioned, the malleability of uh, of Tuchel in, in, in a tactical sense because it's pointed that... Uh, when he was coach at Mainz, they had very meager resources. And uh, he once, I think, in one game, uh, changed their formation six times just to try and unsettle and, and really surprise the opposition. So I think that's just making Chelsea into this flexible, malleable team that's able to shift in between different systems constantly will give us the opportunity to spring a surprise on the opposition, to try and exploit space, to try and uh, be a little bit more vertical, um, maybe a little bit more direct. And I, I certainly think we benefited from that uh, against uh, a Tottenham team led by a very smart and tactically intelligent coach in Antonio Conte. Yeah, and that's one of the things I mentioned in my post-game piece again, in this game um, against Spurs was the fact that, you know, some credit has to be given to Frank Lampard. I know a lot of people don't think about Frank Lampard when it comes to watching this Chelsea team now, because unlike last year, he hasn't been the manager at all this year. But one thing he did is he helped construct this team in a way that he brought in players that can play in these multiple formations. You know, he brought in the Timo Werners, the Kai Havertzes, the Hakim Ziyeches, the uh, Ben Chilwells, the Malang Sars. So all of these guys are capable of playing numerous different positions. And I think uh, just a little credit deserved. Uh, Lampard deserves a little credit in that sense. So those were just some of my thoughts. And, you know, we'll get into later how some of these guys might not be Tuchel's options. But I think in this sense, it really does help him that we brought in these type of players. So. Uh, before we move on and talk about the latest Premier League game against Man City, I do have one more question for you guys on this game, and that relates to the final. So obviously, we watched um, over the last few days Arsenal and Liverpool play out the first leg of their semifinal at Anfield. There was the comical red card by Granit Xhaka. Um, Arsenal went down to ten in, early in the first half, but they managed to hold Liverpool, albeit without Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane to a nil-nil draw at Anfield, and they have to be feeling really good, especially with their game against Spurs canceled this weekend um, about the second leg at um, the Emirates. So what do you guys think? Who do you want in the final? Would you rather play Arsenal or would you rather play Liverpool? Uh, Yeah, I think... uh... When it comes to a final, I'm not sure if there's any sort of preference that you, one can have. I think on paper, maybe uh, Arsenal are slightly probably the quote-unquote easier team that you'd want to face. Um, but as we've known in, in finals uh, against Arsenal, we have uh, gone into FA Cup finals and come out sort of in a very unfavorable manner, you know, having lost uh, in, uh, what was it, I think 2019, was it? Uh, or 2020? Yeah, 2020, I think it was. Um, uh, so I think you always want to uh, beat the best uh, in the final. So I don't know, maybe this is a little bit silly, but I'd rather play Liverpool and sort of win the trophy and, and sort of have no uh, have, have no one sort of say anything against us. Oh, you play the easier team or anything like that. But um, 
Yeah, uh, given the, the nature of the first leg, I think Arsenal certainly have the advantage. Um, Liverpool not having scored uh, at home. So I, I would guess that perhaps Arsenal could could go into the second leg as slight favourites with, without Mane and Salah uh, playing. But I think I'd prefer uh, to play Liverpool because I'd, I'd like to beat Liverpool in the final. Um, I think that would be a little bit more satisfying. Yeah, I mean, you you pretty much took everything I was going to say. Um, uh, yeah, in finals against Arsenal, for whatever reason, we I, I don't understand it, but we just seem to struggle now without you know Drogba to score the winning goal against Arsenal in the final. So I'm not. I wouldn't really want to play them. Um, Liverpool, I don't think are going to be favorites in the second leg, just because of you know no Salah, no Mane. You know, they don't usually rotate their attackers very much, which I think is the key point we should talk about later. Um, so without those guys, I'm not sure they're going to really have enough to get by this Arsenal team. But this Arsenal team is really weird. They they'll turn up against some teams and just completely obliterate them, and then they're back to being you know, awful again. So they make no sense. It could be either team in the final. We, if we get to a final, we should do what we need to do to win it. And it shouldn't matter who the opponent is at that point, whether it be Liverpool or Arsenal. No, no one's going to care if we win the league cup by the end of the season. I'll care because I love the league cup, but you know, it's just one of those things that it, it shouldn't really matter. Who's our, who our opponent is, we should just look forward to beating whoever it is. Yeah, I'm kind of the same mindset as you two. I, I would almost rather play Liverpool. And I know I had this discussion with some other people a few days ago, and they they looked at me funny and thought I was kind of weird in that sense. But yeah, it's it's that history against Arsenal in a cup final. And I know I was joking with the fan side of Arsenal affiliate, Pain in the Arsenal, I sent a tweet over to their page when they were knocked out by Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup. And I kind of just nudged him a little bit and said, ha, ah, well, guess you guys can't beat us in the FA Cup final this year. So, you know, it's something about Arsenal in a final that we just haven't seemed to do well in the last few years. And so I would rather play Liverpool. And, you know, I think our performances against Liverpool this year have been quite good. We've been on we've had some unfavorable circumstances against them this year, and we've still managed to come out with two draws. So I think if we finally catch a break against Liverpool, I think we could, we could beat them in a final and they're the better team. In my opinion, I know it's six, one, six and one half dozen in the other overall, but I, like you guys said, I'd rather play and beat Liverpool in a final. So we're going to take a quick break, stay right here. And after the break, we will talk about Man City. All righty. So thank you for sticking with us. Obviously, we had a, another huge Premier League matchup this weekend. Chelsea went to the Etihad and was not going to say unlucky, but they were undone by a world-class goal by Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, Man City was obviously the more deserving team in the end, but 1-0 loss just always hits home, and it, it just it doesn't feel good coming home from yesterday's game. So what are some of you guys' initial thoughts after the 1-0 loss to City? Uh, well, 
To say it's a bit dispiriting, uh, I think is a little bit of an un- understatement because of the fact that it was pointed that uh, Tuchel mentioned in his in his pre-match interview how passive we were in the first game when we lost 1-0. Um, we invited a lot of pressure onto ourselves uh, and uh, having home ground advantage didn't count for much and, and City ran away probably arguably deserved winners in the first game. And I felt like it wasn't the same story uh, in the second game uh, yesterday, but... Uh, Chelsea's personality didn't come out uh, yesterday in the same way that it did in the three fixtures against City to end the season last season, you know, the FA Cup final, the, the league match, and of course, the, the Champions League final. Um, Chelsea were one of the best, if not the best team in attacking transition uh, last season, your counter-attacking transition. And there were certain moments yesterday, uh, there were, Tuchel mentioned in, in his post-match uh, interviews, well, there were eight or nine moments that Chelsea had um, in that phase. Uh, one of which was obviously uh, Romelu Lukaku's chance in the at the beginning of the, the second half, where he gets a nice ball from Kovacic and then sort of curls it uh, into Edison, I want to say. Uh, gives him a save to make. Um, but it's just in those games against uh, particularly Man City, or probably arguably the best team in Europe at the moment, um, you have to make the fine margins count. You know, you have to make the clinical chances count. And I uh, felt Lukaku had a couple of chances uh, Ziyech, of course, from the rebound from that save has a bit of a chance. Uh, we have a couple of half chances here and there throughout the game that we don't make count. I mean, in total across the game, we had, I think, four shots on goal, one on target. And look, if you're going into a game with a 10-point gap to the league leaders looking to close it, that I hate to say, but that's simply not good enough. You know, you have to do, you have to take the, the you have to take the onus, you have to be the one to take charge of the contest and to try and essentially make something of it. You know, I felt City were the ones who, who were eager. Uh, they they wanted it. Uh, they, they they imposed their game on us rather than the other way around. And um, we, we sort of, you know, we showed the fact that there is a gap between us and between Man City in, in the league context. You know, we still have a long way to go to develop the kind of consistency and uh, uh, just the sheer level of performance that City have generated on a, on a, a game-to-game basis in the league. Yeah, I mean, if you look at things like expected goals and all that, City scored on their worst chance of the game, and it came from Kevin De Bruyne. He didn't even telegraph that shot, like, at all. And I know some people are going to blame Kepa for it, but there's almost no way to stop a shot like that when, you know, he has three defenders on him, he doesn't even look like he's going to shoot, and then it's gone. Um. We had our chances too, but we weren't able to convert them and we weren't able to really, you know, connect or give Lukaku any kind of real service. Um, Overall, it's just kind of weird because there's, there's largely two ways to beat Manchester or Pep Guardiola team. And they're the two extremes. You either have to completely park the bus and just counter them like Jose Mourinho would do. Or you need to be like Shakhtar has been in one of the many games they played against City for whatever reason, and just go completely at them. And if you don't commit to either of those completely, you're going to lose. And that's what happened. We we didn't fully commit to defending. We didn't fully commit to going at them, and it cost us. It, on on another day, maybe that game ends zero zero. But that wasn't the game we had. And like Dan mentioned, it, it comes down to margins, especially in the Premier League. And 
there, there have been many times this season where we come down on the wrong side of the margin for whatever reason. And the difference between us and City is they come down on the right side of those margins. The year Liverpool won the league, they came down on the right side of those margins. And there's just something missing for us right now that doesn't let us do that. Um, I mean, I, I don't think the tactics were wrong. I don't think you can really plan on guys like Ziyech and Plistic just being complete non-factors at best. Uh, I mean, it, we did the best with what we could, and it, it just wasn't good enough. And maybe some of it is, you know, in my mind, the league's the title race has been done since we drew Liverpool for both us and Liverpool. So you go into this game and for our side of things, we really only have pride to play for. Like we're not catching city. We know that. So maybe that's kind of going in the players' minds that they're not going full like a hundred percent just because they know like that gaps, that gap is what it is. And we can talk about closing the gap. Like we've been doing for seasons. We can talk about hunting them down, but, when the season ends, no one's going to really look at how many points were separated from City and remember it compared to last year or the year before. It's just going to be first, second, and third. And right now we're the third best Premier League team. And we're fighting for second, and we're way off first. There's something to be said for that, obviously, you know, with the depth and the injuries that we've had this season. We, I like to compare us this season to Liverpool a few years ago when they were just, I think it was the year they were defending the title, which correct me if I'm wrong, was last year. And they just had injuries everywhere. And I get it. They were all in the back line, but still it's really hard for Premier League teams to maintain that consistency without some of their key players. And we really see, I don't think it's a coincidence that our form started to dip when Chilwell went out just because there's such a, gap in quality from Chilwell to Alonso. And that's not a knock on Alonso. Chilwell was one of the best, if not the best wingbacks in the world to start this year um, when he finally got on the pitch. So there's obviously something to be said for that. But I'm going to kind of allude to a word that you used yesterday, Travis, in our discussions when we talked about this one. City is a machine. And there's no way to put that lightly. I mean, and I know Dan said it too. They're probably the best team in Europe. I think they are the best team in Europe. I think the only team that could even have a say in that conversation right now is Bayern Munich, but city is just so good. And that's a testament to how well Pep Guardiola has built this team and just built a winning mentality um, and instilled that into all of those players. So even though he wasn't in training all week, his assistants still can be leaned on and they have that winning culture there. So that it's, it comes down to consistency and this year we just haven't had it. And I know it's disappointing, but I don't think Chelsea can be too hard on itself. I think we need to look at the circumstances this year. We've had all those COVID injury or COVID cases and injuries and, it is kind of frustrating when you look at something like the North London Derby getting canceled because Arsenal's too stupid to be able to field a team. I mean, they were saying it here on the NBC um, post game in the U.S. They're under 23s played yesterday, or I guess now it was two days ago. So 
why, why can't you field a full team? They had one COVID case. They loaned out two players and they had a player gone at AFCON who they've known is going to be gone for months. So it's just, it's frustrating to see stuff like that be granted a postponement, but then, you know, we had to play Everton without a recognized striker. We didn't have any attackers on the bench that day. And then we couldn't even name a full bench at Wolves. I think with a full team, we beat those teams. And now we are talking about an actual title race still for Chelsea. So I will step off my high horse. And I I just wanted to talk about, um, I know, Travis, you briefly mentioned Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic yesterday in the starting 11. So there were some interesting choices in the starting 11 yesterday, like those two. Um, Mason Mount was left out of the 11. Uh, Cesar Azpilicueta played right wing back and Malang Sar played left center back. Antonio Rudiger stepped in at right center back. So I just want to get some of you guys' thoughts on the starting 11. And did Thomas Tuchel perhaps get it wrong yesterday? Yeah, I mean, at some point you have to rest Mason Mount, right? Like, I mean, obviously he's going to play a ton. He's able to play a ton. But at some point you just have to rest him. Now, maybe I wouldn't have chosen this game to do it, but it was coming at some point. So I don't necessarily disagree with that decision. Maybe the timing was off, but I get it. Um, Lukaku starting... I also don't think was necessarily the wrong decision, but it's kind of an awkward decision after he went and played against Spurs and Kai Havertz didn't because it really seemed like Kai was going to get into this game. And, you know, I don't buy into this whole fluidity argument about Kai Havertz, but, but usually when we do play him, especially when we have guys like Pulisic or, you know, Timo Werner about, around him, they tend to get more space in behind because of Kai Hogwarts. So, you know, that was kind of awkward. Our our defense is going to be what our defense is going to be with all the injuries and COVID and everything else going on right now. The only surprise maybe is that we didn't stay with that four at the back that we've been using against Spurs because it really worked well against them. And there's only – tiny little marginal changes that we actually make between that four at the back with that word we've been using and the three at the back we've been using. And, and like I mentioned, you can't really blame Tuchel for picking Pulisic and Ziyech. And then they both just completely look awful. You know, Ziyech has been doing really well lately. So for him to just completely, you know, be what he was yesterday, that that's unexpected. And that's not, a new issue for Tuchel. Tuchel's had to deal with that issue a lot where players are in form and then all of a sudden it's like a switch has been flipped and they're just not. Um, you know, Pulisic for all his ability to, you know, show flashes really has been kind of a passenger for a few months now. And that's unfortunate because if, if, if he could get anywhere close to the form he had before his injuries, his most recent injuries, that is, you know, he could really be a deciding factor in many matches, but right now he's just kind of on the field, not really doing a whole lot. Um, you know, maybe maybe when we're looking at guys like Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, we're still worried about how COVID's affecting them, how they're coming back from that. 
But I mean, overall, I can't blame Tuchel for his decisions because most of them have an explanation. It's just you know, we're at this point where we're still kind of fighting so many different little issues at once that they're all kind of issues. The, the, if I had to point to Tuchel for anything, it's why why we've been so passive in these two games against Manchester City when last season we went at them every single game. And I don't have a good answer for that still. I, I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it, it's just like night and day how we're approaching them this season versus last season. This season, we're giving them far more respect than you think we should be giving a team we beat in the Champions League final pretty comfortably. So, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's just an awkward situation to be in overall, I guess. Yeah, if I may jump in, the one point that uh, I actually would like to make is the just on the injury uh, COVID situation of Chelsea in the sense that in the past five games, Tuchel has selected four different three-at-the-back combinations. So that should give you a little bit of an idea of just how, how heavily Chelsea's squad has been impacted by uh, the COVID situation, the injuries, um, and just in general sort of the a, a bit of misfortune in, in team selection uh, so, from that standpoint, I can understand perhaps why uh, Chelsea were not as much of a well-oiled machine as, as Man City because, you know, simply we don't have the, the, the sort of the cachet of knowledge or experience or the, the, the sort of the chemistry yet that Man City have. This is a team that's been built over perhaps the entire reign, so four or five years, and we're into maybe month 12 of, of, Tuchel's, uh, of Tuchel's reign. So it's simply we're not at the same uh, trajectory. And then that's obvious on, on the pitch. Um, but if we were to sort of nit- nitpick, I think you can gauge a lot of uh, the, the prevailing feeling on, on someone like Hakim Ziyech, uh, just judging by Tuchel's reactions on the sideline, because I think he embodied uh, everybody's frustration when uh, Ziyech is picking up the ball in good spaces and then and giving terrible passes uh, to Lukaku in behind. Uh, Pulisic himself, uh, he was quiet the whole game. Um, he didn't show his personality and his, his skill set, uh, as you would expect. Um, he's, very, he's very good, very direct and very silky and, and slick on the ball. And he had a couple of chances to go 1v1 against uh, Cancelo, who's, of course, a very, very good defender in his own right. But he didn't even take that. He would sort of drop back or, or cut back and pass pass to a defender or pass inside to to uh, Aspilicueta or something like that behind it. Just, it was sort of a, a general feeling of, of Chelsea in the in sense that, like Travis said, they were a little bit passive, not really sort of possessing that, that high level of confidence that they had in the three games against them last season. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a... Uh, just a, a confidence thing. Maybe it's just a lot of factors weighing in on, on the side. But I don't know. It, it, it was just quite dispiriting to see as a, as a Chelsea fan to see your, your team and your players not sort of play to their, their ability and their, their capacity. And of course, that spills over to a, a player like uh, Lukaku who doesn't get any service. Um, and then to obviously the rest of the team who are, who are trying hard, working really hard on, on defence and then having no outlet, you know, in, in, in an attacking sense. So... Yeah, it was really quite uh, dispiriting, as I said, as a Chelsea fan. And um, yeah, it just leaves me wondering where, what we have to do to, to, to bridge that gap. I think the point about Lukaku is really interesting, and I wanted to kind of talk about him, so that was a, a good segue into it. You know, I think with Lukaku, 
Um, I, I'm not one of the people who thought Thomas Tuchel was wrong to start him yesterday. I think, you know, he's a 97 million pound signing. He's your club record transfer. He is your talisman. You have to start him in games like this. We didn't buy him to sit on the bench against Man City in the league. So, but that being said, when you start Lukaku, you lose some of that intensity. It's no secret that Chelsea doesn't press as well with Lukaku on the pitch. So I think this year is all about figuring out not only for Thomas Tuchel, but also for the team, how to play with Lukaku up top because he's not Timo Werner. So we played with Timo Werner and Kai Havertz all last year, and they both pressed well. So it's just, it's going to be some, there's going to be some growing pains here and there. And we took a gamble yesterday and lost overall. Um, I think when you have Lukaku in the 11 and you really want to press somebody, you need someone like Mason Mount, who is excellent at pressing. And I that's one of the reasons I can't wait for Connor Gallagher, uh, hopefully next year, because Gallagher is a machine when it comes to pressing opponents and even out of the midfield. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So I can't wait for a workhorse like that to get into Tuchel's team. But for right now, we just have to work w- with what we got. And I do agree that Mason Mount um, needed to be rested at some point, especially given his form over the last few weeks. He, he wasn't good in either leg against Spurs, but I think these are the games he shows up for. So uh, overall, Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic have a history of t- – turning up against city. And so I think Tuchel gambled with that. And I think he knew that we weren't going to be on the front foot. We were going to get overloaded in midfield and city was going to control a lot of possession and they were going to be the disciplined machine that they are. So I think he put those guys in there because Hakim Ziyech is on his day able to make something out of nothing. And he usually scores goals in these big games and Christian Pulisic can weave his way through defenses, but as Dan said, he was a total passenger. He wasn't involved at all. And Hakim Ziyech just misplaced every pass. He got the ball in good places. And he, you know, he involved himself in the game. He just made all the wrong decisions. So to sum it all up, Tuchel gambled and he lost. And I think his acknowledgement of that at the end was pulling them both off and changing the shape. But it, it was uninspiring and it was kind of frustrating as a Chelsea fan to watch. You know, we're such a quality team. And I don't think Man City are that much better than us overall, but they're more consistent and they're built for a league title run. Thomas Tuchel can take any team and work wonders with them in a tournament like the Champions League or the Carabao Cup, but the league is a different animal. And Man City are built for a league. And we're just not. So that's the difference between the two sides right now. But that's enough about all the negatives in yesterday's game. Um, personally, I thought Kepa, uh, Malang Sar, and Antonio Rudiger were three bright spots in the team, especially Malang Sar. So I just wanted to get you guys' thoughts on the performances of those three. And did, did any of them stand out to you or did someone else stand out to you in this game? Yeah, I think that you highlighted three very good, very important players, and I think I'll start with Kepa. Uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, how confident he was, particularly on the ball, accepting possession in pre- high-pressure circumstances. He didn't look laboured. He didn't look, uh, you know, like he was playing within himself. Um, 
and he didn't he certainly looked a, a lot more of a uh, sort of a, a Chelsea player uh, now in that game than he than he has sort of in the past when he struggled with all those sort of conf- confidence issues and it it goes a lot uh, to uh, to an extent to show what happens when you sort of put your metaphorical arm around a, a player and, and give them uh, a little bit of belief and confidence you know um, and that's not to say it's a slight on any any manager beforehand it's just really gives you an idea of, of how much the, the mental side of the game matters. Um, but yeah, I thought Kepa, he obviously made a fantastic save from Jack Grealish in, in the latter part of the first half, where, of course, Kovacic has his, his pocket picked by De Bruyne. And uh, yeah, his, his, uh, his left leg, uh, his left thigh kept us in the, in the game. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people nitpick uh, Kepa for the, the De Bruyne goal. Um, but to be honest, again, it's a similar situation to the, the Leicester FA Cup final goal. Uh, people like to say, well, he makes a movement to his right and that 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 doesn't allow him sort of to stretch to the full extent to his left. However, uh, in the build-up to that, you can also defend Kepa for the fact that Kante should foul De Bruyne and stop him from running and the centre-back should close De Bruyne down faster. So there's blame to be apportioned around the team. It's not necessarily purely at Kepa. Could he have saved it? Maybe. You know, does Mendy save that? Maybe. Is it a certainty? No, I don't think so. So I think Kepa is certainly one who who had a very good game. I think he was definitely one of our better players and and definitely deserving of the, of the shirt. Uh, Malang Saar was a positive as well. I thought his passing needs a little bit more work. Uh, it needs to be maybe, I think that comes with a bit more time though. Yeah, I think he's only made about two Premier League starts. Uh, the first one being against Brentford. So that's not really something you can nitpick. I thought he was solid on defence. Uh, he marshaled Raheem Sterling particularly well. And uh, for someone who we signed on a free, he's really done uh, quite well um, when he's come in. And uh, he, he's looked dependable. He hasn't looked out of place. And I think that that's a lot. Uh, a lot of credit needs to go to Malang. Um, certainly earned his spot in the team. And uh, I, I was really quite nervous to see Rudiger play on the right. Um, simply because I think it's a very different position. Um, and uh, it doesn't, I don't think it allows Rudy the, the, the freedom to sort of bomb on that it, that it would um, on the left, you know, because a lot of the, a lot of Rudiger's genius on the left is his ability to switch play. Um, and that the right didn't really allow him uh, too much of that, even though he did have a couple of very good long balls, one out to Callum Hudson on Roy, I think, uh, in the second half. But uh, I really liked him. I liked it. And I think he was a, uh, uh, very good, positive on defence. He showed his uh, his quality again in an unfamiliar position. Um, so I think it goes to show, uh, to an extent as well, uh, to his critics, some people who say that perhaps he's not quite the elite defender. I think he is because it's, he showed it at least in one game how he can uh, apply himself in a, in an unfavoured uh, position. So yeah, the, like you said, Gabe, very three very uh, good positives there. Um, I thought Kovacic had a reasonably decent game as well. Um, even if he did give the ball away a bit too much, I think he's come on a lot in leaps and bounds. I liked his pass to Lukaku, even if Lukaku didn't uh, um, slot it. That's been a good link up this season. Of course, we saw the goal against Aston Villa. Um, but yeah, I liked Kovacic as well, even if he did make a couple of uh, important mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with Malang Sar. For, for me, I think the best thing about him is that he just enjoys playing for Chelsea. Like, he, he doesn't look like he's really bothered by playing as little as he is. And um, personally, I'm always 
of the mindset of if you're looking at a defender and you're judging them on their passing, you're kind of missing the main point, which, I mean, his passing's not great and we do need passing in our team, but he did the defensive stuff really well. So I'm, I'm really good, happy about that. And like Dan said, the passing can come with time if we need it to. Um, Keppa, I mean, if, if Keppa hadn't made more, some of the saves that he did, this is, this is a much worse score line than it is. So I think people are focusing too much on the KDB goal and ignoring all the other chances that City did get that were better than that and Keppa dealt with. Um, I'm not going to hold it against Keppa for, you know, conceding a worldly goal from outside the box. That just is what it is. You know, sometimes you have to look at your opponent and just applaud them for what they've done and stop blaming our players for everything. I don't think Mindy saves that goal any more than Keppa didn't. So, uh, Rudy on the right, I remember John Terry said once that, you know, just switching from left center back to right center back is a massive change because of how your angles change. And I think we definitely saw that with Rudiger in his passing and his long balls because he wasn't able to quite get the ball where he wanted it to like he would on the left. But overall, he did pretty well. Um you know, I'm I'm not really of the mindset that we need to pay Rudiger whatever whatever he's asking for just because it's Rudiger and because he's done well under Tuchel. But you know, he is a he's more capable than we've given him credit for in different positions besides left center back. You know, he's also able to play in a back four. We've seen that lately. So you know, he, he's more versatile and able to cope with these changes more than we think he's able to. And, you know, the only other player I'll mention is Lukaku, simply because everyone's, like, jumping on the bandwagon of hating on Lukaku all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden. I mean, they've been looking for reasons all season. But of all of our attackers, he's the only one to me that looked like he really knew what he was trying to do. And, you know, we can talk about his aerial duels or not helping the team or not pressing, but, you know, he at least looked like he was trying to do something in this match. And he looked like he had a plan to do something, which I can't say about Pulisic or Ziyech. And I can't really say it about, you know, Hudson Odor or Mount when they came on either. Um, you know, maybe it's not the game for Lukaku. Maybe we're not using him how we like to, but I don't buy this whole, he's not happy here. He doesn't want to be here nonsense from the interview. Like that's not what the interview was saying we're just looking for reasons to get upset about Lukaku. And to me, it's weird that when Tuchel was told, Hey, Lukaku didn't get a whole lot of service. Tuchel flipped it into, well, Lukaku needs to make his own service. Yes, that's true. But you can't, you can't expect a striker to do everything on their own either. And, you know, that's not the player Lukaku is. And I don't think Tuchel's making that excuse if it's Kai Havertz up top. So I just wanted to point that out. Like Lukaku didn't have a great game. No one did really overall, but it's not, he's not the reason we lost. He's not the one to single out for the loss at all. So let's just move on from all that right now. Yeah. Those are some interesting points. Um, just circling back to Malang Sar. I know Dan mentioned it and Travis, I know you just hit the nail on the head. Everyone was very quick to point out. I, I was very, happy with his performance yesterday and I praised him both in an article and on social media 
And people were very quick to jump on me and say, well, his passing wasn't very good. And yes, that's true. But show me someone who had a good day passing yesterday. Chelsea wasn't able to hold the ball worth anything. So if that's your biggest knock on Malang Sar, our left center back, he had a pretty fine game. So I thought it was really good to see Sar yesterday because he obviously played against Spurs and he's gotten a lot more chances over the last few weeks with all of the COVID absences and the injuries. So yesterday was a test for him. You know, it almost felt like if he played well yesterday, then he belongs. And I think that might be a little harsh given some of the teams that he's put in good performances against earlier in the season, but he passed the test with flying colors, in my opinion. And it's easy to look at the future of this back line and say, well, Rudiger's out of a contract this summer. Aspilicueta's out of a contract this summer. And Christensen's out of a contract this summer. But I think we need to give a little more credit to the guys that will be here. We know Trevor Chalaba is going to be here. We know that um, Tiago Silva is now going to be here. And we know that Malang Sarr is going to be here. So those are three very capable defenders. Um, obviously, it's not the most exciting thing. But if worse comes to worse, that's a pretty solid back line that I would be happy with. So I know those aren't going to be our three starters next year, no matter what. But I just... I, I was thrilled to see Malang Sar play well because he's had a lot of critics this season and a lot of people just kind of write him off, but he showed that he's here to stay. As for Keppa, Mendy won't save that goal. I know Mendy's pos- positioning is slightly better than Keppa's, and that's something that Keppa's gotten a lot better at over the last few months. Um, And he looks like a more confident goalkeeper than he did under Frank Lampard, which is wonderful to see because I've always enjoyed Kepa and I enjoy what he brings to a team. And I think he's a fine goalkeeper. He played really well yesterday. No one is saving that to goal. Obviously you can nitpick and you can say, well, Kepa should have dived earlier or Conte should have fouled the Brian or Silva, who uh, I'd like to point out had a, an attacker running off his right hip, who he was marking at first, could have closed down De Bruyne faster. And while all of that is true, I'm not going to sit here and be too critical of all of those guys. I think they all played quite well yesterday, and it would be unfair to really criticize. Sometimes you just have to sit there and tip your cap to Kevin De Bruyne, and that's what I choose to do on his goal. So I think Kepa had a fine performance and I think we are in safe hands right now with Kepa. I've said it all season long. I was never really worried about Mendy going to AFCON because you can see the improvement in Kepa and the confidence is there. It's going to be intriguing to see what we do in the future. But for right now, I am very satisfied with Kepa's performances. And then as for Antonio Rudiger, um, Dan really was spot on with this. People didn't know how he'd play at right center back. And I think this was kind of his game to put his hands up and show the world his middle finger because he has been criticized. You know, everyone says, well, we shouldn't pay him just because he's a good left center back. But over the last few days, he's shown he can play in a back four. He can play anywhere along the back line. And I think this is Antonio Rudiger's message to Chelsea to pay him. And I'm of the mindset that I think Chelsea will pay him. My mind has done a complete 
180 over the last few weeks. I thought it would be Christensen who was staying and Rudiger who was for sure leaving. Now I think it's the other way around. So we'll see how that plays out. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But I thought it was a really solid performance from Rudiger in a new position. And I think it was just to, for him, it was satisfying to see him prove everyone wrong in that regard. So um, like you guys also mentioned, I thought Mateo Kovacic was pretty good. I thought N'Golo Kante was pretty good. They just didn't really have a chance to get into the game too often because City overloaded that midfield. And anytime they would get on the ball, they were swamped. So there was no real chance for them to do well yesterday, unfortunately. And that kind of comes down to how Tuchel prepared for this game. I, I, it's no secret that they were going to get swamped. And so maybe an extra man in midfield would have helped. Maybe a 3-5-2. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and dwell on this game too long because we've got another Premier League game coming up. But those are just my thoughts on the the individual performances yesterday. So before we move on, I do have one last question and it's a fan question. And the only one that we're going to have today, I just, I wanted to include this because it was such an interesting point and I'm really excited to hear you guys thoughts. I kind of hit on my thoughts earlier um, with Lukaku. I'll briefly share them after you guys talk about this, but uh, the question is, why don't we go toe to toe with Man City like we did with Liverpool early in the year? So I will, as they say, hang up and listen and let you guys talk this one out. Yeah, I, I think the question is also why why are we not going toe to toe to them like we did last season? Um, and I don't I don't quite understand it because in a way we're almost kind of playing into what Liverpool wants and what City wants. If if you go at Liverpool, that's exactly what they want. They want all that space in behind you, and we saw that when they went to zero up against us. We were playing the high line. They were just hitting us behind. And, you know, it, it was hurting really badly. Um, luckily, they had the same issue and we were able to get back into the game. But, you know, why are we playing like that against Liverpool when that's what they want? And then when you're pl- playing Manchester City, they want you to back off. They want you to back off as much as possible because they want to find those spaces in between your line. And they only get that if you're you know sitting so far off of them that they don't have to think about you and that's what we did again we were really passive we let them have the ball and they were able to it hurt us and the difference between this season and last season is last season we actually pressed them we actually went at them we actually forced them on their back foot which they're not comfortable doing because they only have to do it maybe twice a season i I don't know why we're doing it this way i don't think it's just a matter of Lukaku starting and not pressing from the top. So we're kind of falling back because Lukaku not pressing isn't an excuse for Ziyech or Pulisic not to press. You know, the fact that we're playing with Alonso and Azri Lacorte at wingbacks, that's not ideal because they're not going to be able to get back if they need to. But, you know, even still, if, if our only way forward is just launch the ball to Lukaku and hope he can latch onto it, which we know isn't his strength, then it, it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, me and Gabe, we've, we've talked about this. We've gone over this question over and over, and I don't have a good answer for it. I don't know why we're showing City this kind of respect this season when we didn't last season. You know, maybe it just had something to do last year with Tuchel coming in midseason. He didn't have to really worry about the big picture things because – he was 
he had six months basically a free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. Um, and, and this season, maybe it's a case of, well, we can't afford to lose the city or we lose the title race. So we need to be a little more passive against them. And in turn, that's kind of cost us in both games where we've been sitting away from them and letting them get all this space on the ball. And it's weird because we don't have that approach with Liverpool. And maybe that has something to do with, you know, Tuchel and Jurgen Klopp being so familiar with each other. Um, and just, you know, they their approach to the game is to go at it. And when they're playing each other, they do go at it. So I don't know. I don't think there's a good explanation to this, really. And, you know, maybe we need a bigger sample size. Maybe we need to play other teams that are kind of like City, maybe in the Champions League, to see how we approach those games and see if there's anything different. Or if it's just, you know, this is Pep Guardiola, this is Manchester City, and they're so far ahead of us that we need to be cautious. But, you know, that just kind of plays into what they want. And we didn't do that last season, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think I think Travis makes some tremendous points here, but I think I'm going to try and answer this question in three different ways. Okay, and the first way is pointed in the sense that Chelsea last season under Tuchel almost had a free hit in every competition that they had. Like Travis said, the difference this season is that Chelsea are now European champions, so they no longer have an underdog tag attached to them. And Chelsea historically thrive when they are underdogs and they're not expected to win. Now, it's, it's arrogant to suggest that you, you, you're expected to go to Man City and win. That, that's not the expectation. The expectation, though, is that you're going to go there and play to a standard that is befitting of European champions. And that's not the standard we saw yesterday. So perhaps that, and this is probably clutching at straws a little bit, but that's perhaps something to consider in the sense that Chelsea players and Chelsea as a, as a team now have to accept the fact that people consider this to be a very good team. You know, people now, or teams like West Ham and all that, they, they thrive on playing you, thrive on the idea that, okay, we're playing the European champions today. If we beat them, we are the conquerors of the European champions. You know, so people are, so teams that are playing us this season in particular, or uh, have that extra motivation. And the second thing I want to point out is, obviously, if you're going to go into a game against City uh, and go toe-to-toe with them, like we did in the Champions League final, like we did in the FA Cup uh, semi-final, and in the, in the league last season, we had a lot of momentum, positive momentum at that point, in terms of form, in terms of structure, in terms of... Uh, so just player players in general, you know, um, and we didn't have that going into this uh, this game. I think we picked up a, a lot of momentum in, in the Carabao Cup uh, itself. Um, and the, to, certainly a couple of ties against um, against Spurs. However, I think December with the injuries, just with the, the COVID situation, with the, the sheer mental toll that it took on the players, I think we had a team that went into this Man City game not at their peak, both physically, in terms of personnel, and in terms of uh, perhaps just general mental peace, if it if it were, you know, like just the, the level of sort of peace or uh, tranquility you need to to play at your optimal level. Um, and the third thing is um, from a, a just a sort of playing and tactical standpoint, in the sense that we we have a very good, very expensive 
number nine who is not totally acclimatized to playing with Chelsea. He's not a, a, a player who is entirely, you know, best fit uh, at the moment. So this is a team that's still essentially working itself out. And if you go and play a team that has very much worked itself out and you're still working yourself out, the little small moments and the finer details are going to count at some point. And I felt like, I feel like that's what essentially happened against Man City. Uh, granted, Man City was better on the day and I'm not making excuses by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying, I think these are reasonable explanations we have uh, for Chelsea not performing at their optimal level against Man City yesterday. I think that's a great point, and that's where I was going to go with this. You know, I've talked about, obviously, over the last um, 30 minutes or so about Lukaku and how we don't press as well with him in the team. And I, I think, like you said, Dan, we're still trying to work that out. We are still figuring out how to play with Lukaku. And I know Chelsea fans are historically impatient, and people are going to be calling for he and Tuchel's heads over the next few weeks if we can't figure that out. But I'm... I'm okay with waiting. Um, I'm okay with giving Lukaku and Tuchel a full offseason to figure out how we can really make this work because obviously this isn't going to be our year in the league. So as long as we do well in cup competitions, that's fine by me. I think it's important to note that, um, and I know a lot of people would forget this, it's easy to look at us showing Liverpool the respect and how we pressed them high and Travis, you know, took issue with our high line against Liverpool and all that. But I, I think it's easy to forget that that was the game that Lukaku was sort of suspended by Tuchel for. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we pressed higher and we showed more intensity in the press against Liverpool in that game than we did with Man City um, with Lukaku in the team. So those are my thoughts on that. I'm not going to dive too deep into it because I think you guys explained everything perfectly. It's not an easy question to answer. And if we had the answers, then Tuchel surely would. So it's going to be interesting to see how we figure things out over the next few weeks, months, and potentially even years if we're lucky enough to have Thomas Tuchel around that long. But yeah, it's definitely interesting. So before we get into the last section of our podcast, we are going to take one more quick break. So stay right here and we will be back in just a second. Alrighty, so we've recapped the last two games against two big teams, and now it's time to talk about the elephant in the room. We are going to talk about transfers and overall team selection here to wrap up this podcast. So um, obviously, we mentioned earlier that Marcus Alonso was not great yesterday, and I think he's looked out of sorts for the last few weeks. He started the season really well. I just don't think he's our starting caliber left wing back going forward. Um, so I just wanted to get some of you guys' thoughts on the people that we've been linked to. I know Travis and I have talked about this on previous pods, but it's going to be refreshing to hear some of Dan's thoughts. Um, but Marcus Alonso doesn't seem to be that guy, and I think we can all agree on that. I don't want to speak for you guys, but we've obviously missed out on Luca Dean, which is hysterical seeing as – um, about five minutes ago, Rafa Benitez was sacked from Everton, so they missed out on a quality player. 
and sold him to Villa for a manager that isn't going to be there. Um, Serginho Dessa, obviously an option. I know Emerson was discussed, but it doesn't look like he'll come. And then we've got Kennedy back. So um, what do you guys think at the left wing back position? Um, we'll start there and we'll kind of work our way around the pitch. So what do you think as far as the transfers um, and the people we have in the team, like Alonzo and Kennedy and maybe even Hudson Odoi? I think with uh, this um, left wing back situation, I've gone through kind of a, a, a wide array of different views and emotions with, with respect to this. I understood the clamor for Luca Dean uh, simply because he's, I, I agree that he's probably an improvement on Marcos Alonso. Um, I also understand maybe the clamor for uh, not buying Luca Dean and bringing Emerson back with a view to actually getting a, a formidable replacement or a formidable left wing back in the summer. Um, and I also understand maybe the need to buy um, a, a quality left wing back right now to end the season. So I, I understand the three different perspectives in that sense. With respect to one that I'm in favor of, I think I'm in favor of uh, the second of the three and in in sense of getting Emerson back, uh, a player that's more familiar with the role now just to sort of tide things over until the end of the season when we can sign a more uh, formidable uh, replacement. And I'll, I'll qualify why I say that. And it, it's simply because I don't think Luca Dean as a player is necessarily the type of uh, profile of left back or left wing back that's going to necessarily push Ben Chilwell for a starting spot. If you look at a team like City, they have uh, uh, two or three players per position who can lift, who can go in and lift out. You know, if you, if, if uh, Jao Cancelo doesn't play particularly well at right back, you have Kyle Walker. If Cancelo can then shift over to the left and then you've got Zinchenko who's a more than able uh, replacement. You've got Laporte, Diaz, uh, Stones uh, at centre-back. You've got high quality individuals in every position. Um, I could go on and on, but I don't want to talk about Man City for the entire the entire podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, the point being is I think Chelsea need to evolve into this kind of team where we have those two or three world-class players per position that, in, that allows Chelsea to compete consistently both in the Premier League and across different competitions. So that's what I'd really be in favour of. And I think Emerson performed to a good standard last season, uh, particularly when he was called upon. Um, and I think if if Alonso does, and we hope that he doesn't get injured, but if, if he does to the, to the end of the season, we can have uh, Emerson come in. I'm not sure on Kennedy. Um, every time I've seen him, he's had some good Chelsea performances, but I'm, I'm not sure if he would be sort of to a standard... Um, that we would kind of expect uh, uh, as at Chelsea to competing in, in now probably three or four different competitions. Um, I like Serginho Dest. Uh, if we're going to progress the discussion to him, I think he'd be a good option. He's young. I think he can certainly evolve and I th- that would certainly build our American t- contingent at, at Chelsea, which I think both of you, you gents would uh, definitely be in favor of. Um, but uh, yeah, with respect to any other signings I could see coming in, I think I'd like to see the club do a lot of work um, with respect to getting a midfielder, you know, maybe someone like uh, Aurelian Chouameni or uh, Declan Rice. I'd like to see a lot of background work done in, in January towards uh, signing those players, even if we don't see any of them come in now. Of course, I don't think it's possible in January. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of my take on the left wing back situation. Um and uh, yeah, it's one to watch, but uh, given that it's the, the nearly the 17th of January, we don't have anything yet. 
uh, my fingers kind of getting a little bit tetchy and I'm hoping that, that something will come of it um, within the next few days. Yeah, I mean, the, the tricky part about either wing back spot is should Ben Chilwell and Reese James come back to the players they were, they're the starters. Like, full stop, they're the starters. So if you're signing somebody, you're basically signing someone while telling them that it is highly likely they're going to be a backup by the end of the season, which makes it, which really limits the kind of players you can get. Um, beyond that, wingbacks are kind of still a, like a very niche position where there, there just aren't that many quality wingbacks in the world to go for. And the teams that have quality wingbacks aren't going to just let them go. So you know, you're already kind of looking at a very small pool of players realistically that you can look at unless you're converting a winger into a wingback or a fullback into one. Um, I mean, I, I've been saying for a while now that we should just use whatever players we already have, which, you know, that seems to be Emerson as our main goal here, which, I mean, I'm not crazy about Emerson, but we already have him. The, the only downside to that is we've already got a team on the hook to buy him. So, you know, do we lose that if we bring him back? Is that worth it? Uh, are we even able to bring Ian Monson back? Would that be something we would consider? And, I mean, it, it just kind of keeps going like that. Like, Kennedy coming back, Kennedy played wingback for Conte, but he was terrible at it because he wouldn't actually stay in the wingback spot. But in a in a way that we kind of work for Tuchel because you know Tuchel doesn't need his wingbacks to stay out wide. He he doesn't mind them cutting in. I mean Alonso and Chilwell frequently find themselves in around the box. So maybe maybe Kennedy comes back and that actually works out. The the only downside there is he's been in Brazil again for however long. Is, is he really going to be the player that's going to solve our situation right now? Or is he just a warm body to rotate when Alonso can't go every game? Or, you know, Hudson Odoi or Pulisic aren't able to play left wing back. Or we don't do our 4-2-2-2 thing to just kind of work around the whole wing back issue with Rudiger or Malang Sar playing left back. So the, the rumors on Dest don't excite me as much as they should just because I don't think Dest is a very good defender. And if we do get him, we're basically saying that we're going to use wingbacks until further notice, which I think limits us going forward. I like the ability to play three at the back one game, four at the back another. I think Tuchel would probably prefer that. And if you get Dest, unless you end up playing him as a winger in a four at the back, I don't think you're really going to get a player that's worth going for right now. So, I mean, it's January 16th right now, at least here in America, and we don't have any good rumors to really point to. And two weeks left in the window, if you don't have any solid movement, you're probably not going to get any movement. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get out of this window and don't do anything at this point, honestly. I mean, maybe Emerson comes back. Maybe we just stick with Kennedy. But other than that, I don't really see anything happening. I think the saving grace is the fact that Marina Grenovskaya and the rest of the Chelsea scouting department and the board have done really well over the last few years to mask 
these rumors. Obviously, there's going to be a few um, exceptions to that, like Kai Havertz. Everybody and their mother knew that we were going to get Kai Havertz for some time. And But, I mean, if you look at the whole Lukaku situation, you know, it was one day it was we were not going to get him. There's absolutely no way. And then the next it was like, well, he's on his way to London right now. So um, I, I like this the fact that we move quickly in that department. And to that point, um, kind of contradicting what I just said, by the time people listen to this podcast, it'll be January 17th or later, and we haven't signed anybody. And I know places like The Athletic and Matt Law have said that the board is desperate to back Tuchel. Um, I just, I, I wonder what they've been doing for the last three weeks. And for the month before that, I know Tuchel is obviously going to be focused on coaching this team first and foremost, but this team needs reinforcements. And here we are three weeks essentially into January and into the window, and we've got nobody in. So it it is concerning um, in that point. As far as players like Emerson go, I was of the mindset last year that Emerson was pretty good whenever he played. It, his appearances were few and far between, but I thought when he did play, he played well. Um, and I know I'm one of the few that does believe that. Um, I, I do like the Serginio Dest links. I know his defensive numbers aren't that great, but the fact of the matter is, no matter how you spin it, he is a fullback. You know, it's, it's easy to look at guys, um, and I hate making this comparison, just because the two players are in a totally different class. But Serginho Dest is Alfonso Davies 2.0. He's nowhere near as good. Alfonso Davies is much better, but they are wingers converted into fullbacks. And while their defensive stats might not be great, Dest has experience playing in those roles. He's not like a Christian Pulisic or Callum Hudson-Odoi who have very little experience playing in defensive areas Des might not be the best defender, but I think he would work at a wingback position because he's got the traits to be um, a winger, but he's also got the experience playing in a defensive role. So for that reason and the fact that I think he can play on the left and the right, he's the perfect solution to our problems right now, and we don't really have to commit. I think Barcelona, the rumor is that they'd be willing to give him up on loan initially and hope that someone would buy him because he's not the first choice there. So for that reason, I think he would be willing to make a move to Chelsea if Chelsea really approaches this transfer seriously. Um, the Emerson rumor really doesn't excite me all that much, as much as I just said I, I like him and I thought his play was good. It doesn't look like we'll be recalling him. And Kennedy, I'm just really not thrilled about. I like Kennedy. I actually said last year that there is sort of a place in the team for him if he wants to be an attacking reserve if we want to sell some of the guys he played winger last year in spain and he was really good um, i think his side made it far into the europa league and that was large in part due to his performances so it sounds like tuchel really likes him uh, the early rumor um from goal was that we had another loan move lined up for him but now it the conversation is that he could potentially stay. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't really think he's a solution, but if Tuka likes him, then Tuka likes him. So I'm not going to disagree with him there. I just think that we do need reinforcements somewhere on the pitch over the next 
what is it, 13, 14 days. So, um, you know, I don't think this will happen, but I did want to ask you guys just real quick about the attack. It, I don't think we're going to get anybody in this window, but you look at um, guys like Dembele who have been linked. And this kind of goes back to the point that I made earlier about some of the guys in this team not being too cool guys. Do you think that we see some attacking players come in? Um, like I said, not probably in January, but in the summer. And do you think we see an overhaul? Because there was a report this morning that Tuchel's really frustrated that his attack's been really inconsistent. So where do you think we go there? And um, do you have any thoughts on the whole unit? Um, I mean, I mean, I think one issue with our attack is that we haven't been able to play the same attack for a very long time. and you know, so much of attack is knowing what your teammate's going to do, knowing their tendencies, being able to kind of read their mind before they do something. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier with Liverpool, you know, Jurgen Klopp doesn't really rotate his attack very often. You know, Mane and Firmino and Salah, they know exactly whatever all the other ones are going to do. So they're able to function much quicker and much more effectively than our attack where, you know, this game we might start Lukaku and then we're starting Kai Havertz and uh, now we got Timo Werner up top. Like, we have no real consistency there. And a lot of that's been our own fault. Not our own fault, but because of things we can't really control like COVID or injuries or anything else. But I I think that's a big part of it. Uh, Other than that, I mean, we've seen ZS doesn't quite feel like a Tuchel player when we're playing three at the back. But when we're doing this whole 4-2-2-2 thing, he's the player that it's all revolving around, it seems. So maybe there's some life for him yet. Uh, Pulisic, he just seems kind of like the last player to fill in everywhere for Tuchel. And in a way, so does Hudson-Odoi. They both just kind of feel like fill-in players when Tuchel doesn't really know who else he wants to use there. Uh, Even Timo Werner hasn't really played a whole lot this season compared to last season. So maybe there's something there too. Um, I mean, it's, it's just hard to build an attack and, you know, you got a guy like Lukaku tools, never really used a striker like Lukaku. He used guys like Mbappe and Aubameyang who are much quicker and getting behind much more efficiently than Lukaku does. So I don't know. It, it, it's, we just have such a weird combination of attacking players from you know, going back to Conte and then Sari and Lampard and now Tuchel. And maybe three at the back isn't the best way to use the attacking players we have just because we're always going to be down a player. But, you know, we've got to figure out something here. And I don't know who in the market we really would go for because it feels like every season we make a big money attacking signing only for it not to work. So at some point we just need to figure out, you know, what we've got, what we can make work. and you know, maybe maybe just look at who we can build around now. You know, Mason Mount seems to be the attacker we get the most out of. Uh, Lukaku we're going to have next season, no matter what people want to happen. He's going to be here again next season. So who do you fill in around those guys? And how many guys do you fill in around those guys? I think are important questions going forward for Tuchel. 
I think if uh, I may add on to what Travis uh, has said, I think what we need going forward um, in an attacking sense, uh, aside from Lukaku, because I, I, I echo what uh, Travis has said, and I think that he's going to be here next season. Uh, I think what we need is output. You know, I think we need output from uh, attacking wide areas. We need a player reference point to give us the kind of attacking returns and the kind of uh, productivity in an attacking sense that... Uh, all elite teams need. Now, whether whether that's Usman Dembele or not, I don't know. I, I don't know some, too, many, too many names. I had my eye on uh, a bit of a dream signing of uh, Federico Chiesa, despite the fact that he has a bit of a poor record in uh, Serie A this season. Um, but uh, just a bit of murmurings I'm seeing online as well is that Paolo Dybala is into the last six months of his contract at Juventus, and apparently they've withdrawn their contract offer. So that could be one to, to keep an eye on as well. Um, Nevertheless, uh, I just think that there are a lot of square pegs in round holes in, in an attacking sense with, uh, with us so far. We seem to have a lot of different profiles of players and not so many that fit uh, defined roles that Tuka wants us to play, be it in a 3-4-2-1 or a 4-2-2-2. You know, a 4-2-2-2 suits probably Lukaku and Werner, but then does it suit uh, Ziyech and and Pulisic and Hudson Odoi, probably not. Um, and uh, maybe three, four, two, one suits the the wingers that we have, but not the likes of Ziyech and, and Werner. So the thing is, for me, what I'd like to see is having players who can fit into defined roles. If we're going to play a three, four, two, one, let's play a three, four, two, one, and have players in the roles aside next to Lukaku. We're going to complement him well. Um, so I, do I think there'll be a, a major overhaul at Chelsea in the summer in terms of goings out and comings in? I don't think so. Maybe not. It's just sheer because of the weight of contracts that a lot of these players are, are, are on and just the amount of money it would, it would cost to get rid of them or to bring in new players. I think we'll, probably what we'll see is, is two to three maybe marquee signings uh, that sort of progress the team that much further. Um, but without sort of upsetting the entire sort of balance sheet of, of at Chelsea. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'd like to see. As I said, I don't have too many names, um, but one that does keep floating around is Usman Dibele because of his links to Tuchel and how productive he was at Dortmund. Um, if we could get in an ideal world uh, a Dembele who's guaranteed to be injury-free, I think that's a frightening prospect, um, but that's a, a massive if. So uh, that's not somebody that I would really like to nail my 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 sort of my hopes on. Um, but uh, whatever whatever the the case may be, I think the club are are perfectly adept at identifying the right type of profile of player. And I think something that's been important in this January window as well, something that Chelsea have been guilty of in the past, is the quote unquote panic buying. So to me, sort of Luca Dean might have been somebody who we could consider to be a, a bit of a panic buy, you know, uh, addressing a situation that uh, has arisen and not giving it a little bit too much thought. So I think I'm, I'm hopeful in a positive sense that there's been a bit of a paradigm shift at, at Chelsea, certainly in the January transfer window, and that the fact that they're waiting and that, they, that so much time has gone by in this window, it's because they have a, a coherent plan. Um, that they're following and they're not being sort of uh, knee-jerk E, as it were. Um, so anyway, that's my hope. And that those are sort of my thoughts on, on the transfer situation, the, the attacking situation at, at Chelsea.
Yeah, I think the one positive thing that I've seen throughout all of this is the fact that despite the struggles and despite the history with both the board and Tuchel as separate entities, it seems like they're in agreement. And that is really a frightening prospect to other clubs going forward, because if Tuchel can bring in these kind of guys that are quote unquote, his guys, and he can really get this team molded into a unit that he likes and just start playing the way that he ideally wants Chelsea could be very, very good going forward. Now, just kind of switching gears, the last thing we'll we'll touch on quickly. Um, it seems throughout the season that every game is, you know, one of the most important games of the year, just because Chelsea keeps putting itself in these difficult positions. So here we are, we've just taken one point from two Premier League games against City and Liverpool. And obviously the title race is over. Some of us believe it's been over. Um, I think our sole focus now is moving into second. And as we're recording, Liverpool's up 1-0 on Brentford, which puts them two games or two points, excuse me, above us with a game in hand. And we are now stuck in this weird place where we're eyeing Liverpool and we want to finish second, but we've also got to look at who's behind us now. Um, Conversely, West Ham right now is losing three to two to Leeds in the 66th minute. Fingers crossed that result holds. But as of right now, Chelsea's in third, West Ham is in fourth, and they're six points behind us if this result stands. So we've got Brighton coming up and on Tuesday, and that's a very important game once again. Um, Brighton, a team who frustrated us a few days ago, uh, and there it's away. And the one um, positive statistic I've seen, I saw it when scrolling through social media the other day, was after the Tuesday trip to Brighton, Chelsea will have played eight of the nine teams in the top ten currently away from home. So it looks like, and we've already played Liverpool twice. We've already played City twice. So it looks like the back half of Chelsea's schedule is really going to be favorable to us. So um, don't mean to ramble on here, just kind of giving my thoughts. But I wanted to ask you guys, are you starting to get worried? How do you think this Brighton game will affect our um, ambitions for a second or our top four hopes? Um, I think if if I may jump in, uh, I think it's a must-win game. I don't think there's any way to sort of colour uh, any other or to look at it in any other way. Um, because of the fact that, like you said, Gabe, we've taken one point from the past two games, um, it's getting to the point where we're slowly being dragged into a top-four battle. And I think at the start of the season, having uh, seen the club heavily invest in, in a in a uh, striker, I don't think that that's something that we we necessarily considered. I mean, of course, you never take anything for granted in the Premier League, such that it is. But it's important for us now to begin to build momentum in the league to the point where a, a Champions League position is secured, uh, if not mathematically, but uh, practically by the the sort of the April time of the year, so we can begin to focus. Ideally, if we're still in the latter competitions, on like things like the FA Cup and potentially even the, the, the Champions League, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, but uh, yeah, that's... So, so Brighton are, are a tough uh, proposition. Uh, they're very place of very good football. 
and uh, they they hassled us when they played us um, obviously at, at Stanford Bridge. Um, so that's 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 something to consider. Um, but yeah, it's, it's getting to the point where, as I said, every We've got Spurs after Brighton as well. Uh, someone who a, a team who's got, I think, four games in hand on on everyone. So um, it's getting to the point where we we now need results. It's no longer a case of of, of being uh, content with how far we 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 have come. Uh, we need to start putting performances together, putting results together, and start to climb towards. I think probably around the 70, 75 point mark to guarantee uh, uh, Champions League football. Um, because, like you said, the title is gone, so we need to now focus on our, our targets of, of second or third. Whether we can uh, usurp Liverpool, I'm not sure. Liverpool, of course, have to still play City, um, and uh, that's something to, to consider. But uh looks to me that perhaps the impact so far of not having uh, Mane and Salah doesn't seem to be too profound. But uh, as a Chelsea fan, you never wish ill on other teams, but I would hope that it does start to become a bit of a, a negative impact on them and that we can start picking up some more positive results so that we can, in fact, uh, finish second. Yeah, for, for whatever reason, Brighton is tricky to us. And I know at least the, the athletic guys have made the comment that they're kind of like the lower table Chelsea and how they approach the game. And, I mean, that seems to stall us out uh, with Tuchel. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we need to look over our shoulder at fourth place yet. So we're still kind of looking at second or third, and largely that's going to be academic, which one we finish in. But, you know, we obviously want to beat Brighton. We want to beat Spurs when they come up after that. And... We, we just want to be competitive in the league. You know, there's still a lot of trophies to play for this season, FA Cup, the League Cup final, whoever we get, Club World Cup, um, Champions League. So it, it, we need to have that momentum going into those kind of games, and we're going to get that through the league. Uh, just because the league is kind of done and we're not going to be able to catch up doesn't mean we don't need to win those games to give ourselves the confidence and the strategies and everything else that we need going into these cup games. So, you know, Brighton is a solid team. They should push us. Spurs, even though we kind of controlled them for two games, they're going to push us. And we just need to get the results against them before we go to Plymouth. Or, you know, we host Plymouth. And then we can really rotate against them and, you know, get some ideas before the Club World Cup and get that momentum before the Club World Cup even. Yeah, I think you guys um, hit the nail on the head when you said it's a must win. Um, and just to in that little segment, there's been a lot of action elsewhere in the Premier League. So Leeds now 4-2 up on West Ham. So it looks like, fingers crossed, they'll get that result. And then Liverpool looks to have wrapped up Brentford. They're up 2-0. I know um, you don't want to count out Brentford with how crazy their team is. But that one looks all but wrapped up as well. So as it stands, Chelsea's sitting third. Quite comfortably, given the West Ham result, hopefully. Um, but, you know, it's it's another season where we are now we, – we went in with high expectations, and I know we can still win up to five trophies, and that's what I think our main focus should be. But I just don't want another top four race. I don't, I don't think my heart can take the stress of another top four race. But obviously that situation is out of our hands. 
we are just three podcasters and that'll do it for us today. So I just wanted to thank everybody for sticking with us and listening to us every week. Be sure to share the podcast and get the word out. Um, be sure to check us out at theprideoflondon.com. We've got a bunch of great articles from a plethora of wonderful people from around the world. And we provide analysis for all things Chelsea. So be sure to check us out there. Social media, we're on Facebook at The Pride of London. We're on Twitter at Pride O London. And then if you want to interact with us personally, you can find me at Gabe H Sports. You can find Travis as well on Twitter. Yeah, you can find me at, at Tractical. And then, Dan, go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, idan 5 I-D-A-N-K-N-O-W-0-5. Of course, I also write for Chelsea content for the Chelsea Social uh, and Chelsea Vavil, a couple of things. Uh, I wrote one today. Um, and also, I run a little football podcast with my friends, Premier League Centric. So if you're in, in the mood for anything uh, with a Southern African flavor, uh, just three of us uh, Premier League fans. Uh, talking uh, Premier League at uh, H Football Pod. That's uh, E-I-S-H Football Pod. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, we appreciate appreciate any listens, any feedback, and uh, anything you, uh, any patronage at all. And uh, I just want to thank you both for having me on. It's been an honor to chat Chelsea with you. Had a great time and uh, look forward to chatting more with you uh, in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Dan. It was a pleasure, and we'd be happy to have you back in the near future. So that'll do it for us today. Once again, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.